I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week on the Magnificast, we're going to reflect a little bit on a recent report from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and also read a little bit of Eco-Socialism by Michael Lowy. Two things that, I guess, go together. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or at least they'll maybe not make you feel better, but make you feel like there's something to do, and that yeah. helps a little bit. Keep you busy at the end of the world. That's what everyone <laughs> needs. That's right. That's a, that's what I need, really, because I'm not creative <laughs> enough to like have a good time at the end of it. So just you know, just like busy the whole time. That's that's my strategy. <laughs> yeah, eco socialism, uh, and then the subtitle of this book is a fidget spinner for the end of the world. All right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Michael Lowe, that's actually not true. Um, <laughs> okay, well, um, you've probably seen it if you've been on the internet, but uh, this week on uh, like the Washington Post, um, uh, yeah, a, a UN intergovernmental panel on climate change report came out, or the IPCC, as I like to call them. Um, <laughs> the report is, like I guess, infamous at this point for being pretty catastrophic and telling us about how we're going to all slowly cook to death on this planet. Um if you haven't read it, I don't know, I guess it's surprising, but uh, climate change is real, global warming is happening, and it's going to get worse. The Washington Post's uh, reporting on this like climate change report says this. Most strikingly, the document says the world's annual carbon dioxide emissions, which amount to more than 40 billion tons per year, would have to be on an extremely steep downward path by 2030 to either hold the world entirely below 1.5 degrees Celsius or only or allow only a brief overshoot in temperatures. Okay, so um, what they're saying is that we got to get things under control by 2030 or things are going to get bad. Uh, the Washington Post report goes on to say, current promises made by countries as part of the Paris Climate Agreement would lead to about 3 degrees Celsius or 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit of warming by the end of the century. And the Trump administration recently released an analysis assuming about 4 degrees Celsius or 7.2 degrees Fahrenheit by 2100 uh, if the world takes no action at all. Okay, so things are pretty dire, it seems, and we don't have a lot of time. It's worth pointing out, too, um, just to, I guess, 
uh, drive home the gravity of these kinds of analyses that these are being released by people like the Trump administration and, uh, you know, a, a UN panel, not exactly known for being super, um, like analytically radical or kind of facing up to like the actual material conditions around them. So, uh, if those bodies are willing to say that sort of a thing, I mean, I, I, I try not to be too much of a doomsayer or anything like that, but, uh, it's a, it's probably, I, I just always assume it's probably worse than the UN thinks. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I mean, uh, the the thing about the the Trump administration's like science team or whatever releasing this is kind of telling because you know once he took office, like you couldn't even say climate change from the federal government, right? Like the the EPA changed it, the the Pentagon changed all of their terminology. Um, they still planned for it, but still. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you're right. It's probably it's probably is more dire because of that. Um, well, uh, it is all kind of scary. Um. In response to these scary numbers and, uh, you know, probable ecological collapse, CNN does have some good suggestions about things we can do. Uh, thanks, CNN, for these really hot tips. Hot tips at the end of the world. Uh, CNN suggests you can do some really radical things like um, buy an electric car. <laughs> you can take a bus or a train rather than drive your fossil fuel car around. Um, they uh, highly suggest this is the funniest one to me. Uh, they highly suggest to buy a smart thermostat, like a nest, like buy a nest for your house, uh, and then eat less meat, which I'm down with, but like, I don't know, it's not going to save us probably in the end. Yeah, it's amazing that all of their suggestions are actually uh, advertisements. I know, no kidding. Uh, the CNN uh, Hot Tips End of the World ad is brought to you by uh, Tesla, Amazon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, your new vegan butcher down the street. Yeah, that's it. So uh, thanks, CNN. I guess um, those are some things we can do. But hey, CNN, I got the hottest tip of of the century for you. Um, The number one best thing you can do uh, to sort of thwart climate change is uh, become an eco-socialist. That's what I'm talking about. Rap air horns. Uh, A hot take for a hot planet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So... (laughs) Uh, this week, uh, in kind of response to some of these like scary environmental reports, we kind of thought it would be good to think through what it is that Marxists have to say about socialism and ecology. There's a lot of people we probably could have turned to on this, um, but we decided to turn to Michael Lowy's book on eco-socialism because it's short and really good. So yeah, it is. Get it or something. Both of those things. It's super accessible. You can hand it to somebody who's never read a word about socialism and they'll understand a little bit more of it by the end, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, okay. So in uh, Michael Lowy's book, he does a few things. He kind of introduces the idea of eco-socialism. He um, walks through kind of like how it's different than regular Marxisms of the big state communist countries, scare quotes, um, <laughs> and um, talks about a lot of indigenous struggle in Latin America. It's worth noting that Michael Lowy is like French Brazilian. Um, so he has that sort of perspective, um, which I appreciate. I learned a lot of cool stuff about Eva Morales in this book, and that's good. Yeah, it is. That's worth the price of admission for sure. Yeah, love that Evo. <laughs> um, yeah, well, let's get into it right at the top. Uh, he has a great little chapter called What is Eco-Socialism? And it's a lot of things. We'll kind of uncover it a little more as we go. But he does a really good job of summarizing it in um, two kind of 
nice little paragraphs here. Uh, he says, the central premise of eco-socialism already suggested by the term itself is that non-ecological socialism is a dead end and a non-socialist ecology cannot confront the present ecological crisis. So that's one central premise put sort of negatively. I guess that's the negatively stated premise. Uh, but he also has some some kind of positive um, articulations too. So he says, eco-socialist reasoning rests on two essential arguments. I'm going to read the first one, Matt, and then I'm going to have you read the other one, because they're kind of long. Uh, the first argument, he says, The present mode of production and consumption of advanced capitalist countries, which is based on the logic of boundless accumulation of capital, profits, and economies, or <laughs> of capital, profits, and commodities, waste of resources, ostentatious consumption, and the accelerated destruction of the environment, cannot in any way be extended to the whole planet without a major ecological crisis. According to recent calculations, if one extended to the whole world the average energy consumption of the United States, the known reserves of petroleum would be exhausted in 19 days. And this book was not written yesterday, so who knows. Thus, this system necessarily operates on the maintenance and aggravation of the glaring inequality between North and South. So there's a whole lot of, of issues bound up in it, but that's the first argument that is constitutive of eco-socialism. It's a good argument. The second argument is also good. He says this, Whatever the cause, the continuation of capitalist progress and the expansion of civilization based on market economy, even under this brutally inequitable form in which the world's majority consumes less, directly threatens in the middle term, any exact forecast would be risky, the very survival of the human species. The protection of the natural environment is thus a humanist imperative. So, there is a lot of negativity, obviously, still in these as well. But the reason I say they're kind of positive articulations is that, or positive ways of putting the the premise of eco-socialism, um, is that they're not like totally acidic, right? So the first uh, argument is basically that we can't consume or produce the same kinds of things we're doing in capitalism. And that means we should do some other things that he'll go on to, to talk about, and we can sort of do some more of that. Um, and the second argument is uh, to say that there's a humanist sort of impulse to actually making these kinds of criticisms. Um, it's not just a, a kind of nihilism. It's based on like a, a faith in the human spirit or something like that. Um, we've talked about that before. And I mean, you could take that that humanism or leave it in Marxism, but uh, Lowy has taken it. And I think it does some good rhetorical work. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, it reminds me of a tweet I saw earlier today, I guess, where someone said that like sort of the nihilism in face of ecological collapse is necessarily fascist um, hmm. in the sense that like it's just like we're all equally dead and that whole kind of thing, uh, sort of praising the destruction of humanity is a fascist impulse, I suppose. Mm. Not, I suppose it is for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, um, but the, uh, the hope to sort of save, uh, the environment in some way. So, so it's habitable to some, to some life is, um, a better impulse that we should probably think through. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, well, uh, this all sounds kind of like broad, strokey, and, you know, really stage-setting uh, kind of moves that he's doing, and it is the beginning of the book. But what's really great, I think, about this book is that there's a lot of times when he just creates, like, bulleted lists of actual proposals or quotes uh, manifestos or declarations that do that as well. Uh, and he has been involved in preparing some of these uh, statements, so they're published in the book. 
Um, before we kind of get into some of the theoretical stuff, uh, it might be helpful to just have some of these practical demands out on the table first. Um, this is sort of backwards in the book because it all comes at the end, but I don't know, at least for me, when you're, when I'm reading it, uh, the whole time he's talking about different theoretical stuff, I'm like, yeah, but what does this actually mean? And, uh, it, it, it might help to, to have some spoilers up front. Um, so let's just go through a few of them. Uh, first, Eco-Socialism Proposes Radical Transformations in The Energy System by Replacing Carbon-Based Fuels and Biofuels with Clean Sources of Power Under Community Control, Wind, Geothermal, Wave, and Above All, Solar Power. He talks about solar communism or solar socialism in this book, and that's an extremely yeah. cool thing to say. Yeah, um, it is. It's a very good term. I like solar communism. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, another radical transformation in the transportation system by drastically reducing the use of private trucks and cars, replacing them with free and efficient public transportation. Third, present patterns of production, consumption, and building, which are based on waste in built obsolescence, competition, and pollution by producing only sustainable and recyclable goods and developing green architecture. Nice. And lastly, food production and distribution by defending local food sovereignty as far as this is possible, eliminating polluting industrial agribusinesses, creating sustainable agro-ecosystems, and working actively to renew soil fertility. So still some kind of umbrella um, ideas, I guess, but ones that have obviously, uh, they have obvious sort of policy um, branches that could spring out of those roots. Yeah, for sure. Um, They aren't, I mean, you know, these are the types of things that you hear sort of like, progressives trying to get at but Lowy can state them in a lot stronger of terms because he's really committed to the entire transformation of society and not just sort of like reforms that make things better so it's cool for that reason yeah he has a few others that we can read off here really quick too some other things he wants to uh he wants to do so not just clean capitalism but he wants to uh completely transform the whole system because that's what socialism is all about so (laughs) Some other things that we can change, sort of like the the material changes that are very specific. Uh, drastic and enforceable reduction in the emission of greenhouse gases, development of clean energy sources, provision of an extensive free public transportation system, progressive replacement of trucks by trains, creation of pollution cleanup programs, and elimination of nuclear energy and war spending. Uh, it almost sounds like the CNN list, but it's better, right? It sounds different for some different reasons. <laughs> it's weird that he didn't say buy a nest. It, I don't know. It's the book wasn't written that long ago. Nests exist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Anderson Cooper, call him up. You know, he'll help you out. Help you fill out that <laughs> list. Uh, yeah, for sure. He also super doesn't like nuclear energy, and I'm fine with that. Just want to put that out there as a hot take. Yeah, I mean that's fine with me too. Um, his critique of nuclear energy, I think is, uh, in some ways it's just about ecology, but in a lot of other ways too, it's about his distrust of bureaucracy, um, which plays into the larger, uh, critique he has of, um, you know, state socialism or big state communism or whatever word you want to use to describe, uh, like the Soviet Union and China. Right. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that is a fantastic segue, unplanned, into talking a little bit... I set it up. (laughs) You did. Uh, The alley-oop, we're dunking into how he breaks with uh, regular Marxism. Uh, I think this is kind of where the book is both really interesting and also... um, I was talking a little bit. Well, how did I put it before we started recording? Uh, I feel like I've been been trained by a certain Marxist hermeneutical tradition to... uh, 
just not see some of the sectarian moves that Louis wants to make as uh, viable, but they're very important to talk about anyway. And some of them are actually still extremely good. Um, good to learn from, no matter what your, your Marxist tendency might be. Uh, so you might be wondering how eco-socialism is distinct from Marxism in general. And that's a really good question. And thankfully, Louis has a handful of pages to kind of trying to disentangle eco-socialism from other kinds of Marxism, sort of like preceding historical Marxism. Uh, so I'll, I'll talk maybe about the first one real quick. Um, so on the one hand, eco-socialism is like a pretty straightforward response to Marx's work. Um, so eco-socialism is an alternative to what Marx himself calls the destructive progress of capital. And this is something that a lot of Marxist theorists are working out now, kind of going back to Marx and Engels. And they discover this uh, really interesting ecological thread in Marx um, in particular. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff in the Monthly Review, which is a great socialist magazine uh, where they're like always, always coming down with this stuff. Um, but uh, on the other hand, Lowy notes that there's a, a, a difference here with eco-socialism too. Uh, so his big defining moment for eco-socialism is that it rejects what Lowy calls productivism. And that's a good term uh, for him to criticize the Soviet Union and kind of big state communisms that he thinks sort of just like they broke with capitalism as a political arrangement, but they didn't really break with the productive habits or patterns of capitalism. So they retain uh, all kinds of, of habits that actually were really ecologically devastating uh, and in some cases still are like in places like China and elsewhere. Um, so that's kind of an interesting point and something for communists, I think, to think about. I think that is a good thing for communists to think about. Uh, I also think that the way he kind of just, uh, I, I mean, like, I don't want to defend the big state communisms because I mean, <laughs> if you're, if you're a person who's trained to sort of be suspicious of like the left, of left communism, I'm like a person who's trained to be suspicious of, of big, <laughs> uh, of big state communisms, but here I am defending them. Um, <laughs> it's also the case, too, that, like, Lowy, I, I don't know, there's a lot going on with that, too, right? Like, there are reasons that, um, that like, the Soviet Union felt like it had to, like, outproduce the United States. I mean, there was, like, a lot of stuff kind of going on culturally at the time. So it's not right. like these things are sort of, like, you know, just irrational or something. They were reasons that they were, you know, acting, that they had to, like, really prove the strength of, um, uh, of like, a planned economy. Uh, anyways, uh I'll take the critique still. I think it's still a good one. Why not? Um, <laughs> uh, on this whole point, uh, uh, Lowy distinguishes eco-socialism from the, like, the big state communism. I don't know if big state communism is like a real phrase that people use, but I really like it right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, TM, TM, TM. Anyways, he uh, <laughs> distinguishes eco-socialism from big state communism by trying to more closely ally himself with Marx um, instead of like, I don't know, like, Marxist Leninism or something. Um, so he says this. Moreover, uh, they believe the aim of socialism, uh, they being Marx, is not to produce more and more commodities, but to give human beings free time to fully develop their potentialities. To this extent, they have little in common with quote productivism. Uh, so there you go. That's what Marx and Engels are all about. You can go work somewhere in the morning and be a philosopher in the afternoon, and then go fishing or whatever. <laughs> I'm not a fan of fishing, so that doesn't really appeal to me, but the other stuff's fine. Go play uh play your Fortnite. <laughs> Go play Fortnite in the morning. Fortnite, <laughs> Fortnite in the, the afternoon. Evening. Fortnite at supper time. <laughs> that's what that's the real Marxist vision of the world. <laughs> Gotta get away from that productivism and just get into that Fortnite. <laughs> that's right. Um 
yeah, that authentic need stuff is good. And I love that he pairs it with the, the biblical line here. Um, I mean, Lowy has done a ton of work on liberation theology. He wrote a really good book called War of Gods that we've mentioned here before. Um, so it's neat to see him kind of internalizing some of that, uh, even though he's not a Christian himself. Um, so that's cool. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about how to satisfy those authentic needs. Um, Louis talks a lot about sort of strategizing, uh, how to meet them through democracy, which I think will give us a lot of things to talk about. Uh, but, um, yeah, well, let me throw it over to you, uh, to introduce this. How, how does Louis think that we ought to, uh, meet those authentic needs in a, in an eco-social society? Well, okay, so democracy is definitely sort of his mode of political change. Um, and it's kind of complicated, I think. Like, listen, I love democracy as much as the next guy, but what Lowy's saying here is not entirely clear to me at all times, and it's a little bit confusing. So I think we can just kind of do our best to maybe work our way through it mm-hmm. um, and just try to get a handle on what he's trying to say. Uh, because I don't know exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't know exactly what he's getting at at every sort of step of the way. So, uh, democracy. That's, good, I, that's why I threw this over to you because I didn't know either. So it's good to know yeah. that we're both uh, feeling our way around here. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, democracy. It's great. Love it. Demo- everyone should try it. Um, <laughs> he uh, Louis says this: eco-socialists should take their inspiration from Marx's remarks on the Paris Commune. And this is not a quote from Marx, but just like, I don't know, like kind of like a weird paraphrase, I suppose. Not a weird paraphrase. It is a paraphrase for sure. Workers cannot take possession of the capitalist state apparatus and put it to work at their service. They have to break it and replace it with a radically different democratic and non-status form of political power. Um, okay, so I was with him all the way up until he said non-status form of political power, because that is not the Marx that I know and love. Uh, uh, Dean and I were having a a sort of pre-Magnificast talk about this and um, there are folks uh, even folks who I really like um, Marxist philosophers and theorists who do read Marx as a non-statist and I think that's cool but I guess what's confusing to me is I don't really understand what non-statist political power looks like is that what does that mean Dean? (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I guess, you know, trying to read it charitably, like, I can understand it in certain ways. Uh, he wants something that is, I mean, he, he quotes a number of theorists that he, he doesn't adopt their political philosophies per se, but he kind of, like, puts himself in their orbit. Um, one of them is, like, Murray Bookchin, for example. Um, I think that's helpful because I, I don't want to suggest that, like, Lowy is saying the same thing as Bookchin because he doesn't say that. Um, no. But it's helpful because it's a kind of way of looking at how people organize themselves into radically democratic associations in theory, uh, where they can sort of have conversations about how they want to um, uh, imagine for themselves the political architecture that their local communities will take place, right? This is always like, not just an anarchist point, but a sort of general left communist point that um, not having a state authority doesn't mean that you don't have any authority not having state power doesn't mean that you don't have any power it just means that you don't have this specific kind or this specific model um and there's a part of me that can sympathize with that insofar as like you do have to break the bourgeois state you do have to break uh you know in the like 
pet in the past you have to break the fetal state or something and replace it with something radically different um but i mean i guess i'm sort of convinced by the one in this point that like breaking the bourgeois state and building a, a worker state isn't necessarily a bad thing uh or isn't necessarily rad you know like the same uh, or something like that like um there is something kind of qualitatively different about that even if there are some uh some leftover things that need to be moved beyond right like all, all communists sort of think that it's just a matter of strategy of whether or not you think there could be a, an, an intermediate state between capitalism and, and a communist future yeah okay i'm about to say something and maybe it will sound dumb and if it does i don't know sorry um <laughs> So I guess the whole like non-statist reading of Marx, like I get it, you know, there are like ways to read Marx as, you know, um, more, more left communist than not. I guess like, I just don't feel like the term non-statist is a difference that ends up making a difference when you, when it comes to like sort of theorizing about, uh, yeah, I mean about revolution or something. So like, I, I don't know how how it, there, there's a difference between a bourgeois state and a worker state. That is totally true, right? Because it's about who owns the means of production and right. all that good stuff. But like, um, I don't know what it means to really have non-status forms of political power because like uh, uh, <sighs> politics is about the negotiation of power between people, right? Like who owns who owns what? That's politics. So like even if you don't want to call it a state or you want to say like, we don't have a formal state there. Like, even if you want to be completely like mutualist or something, like you still have like a status form of power in the sense that like you're negotiating who does what and who owns what in some way. So just, I don't know saying you're not a status, but you're still exercising power in an organized way. just doesn't seem like it's like a, a difference that really makes much of a difference to me. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, ultimately, I'm not convinced that the the non-status rhetoric is really worthwhile or, uh, in my opinion, very like viable as a strategy anyway. Um, but I also think it, it's weird because so Louis has a real utopian streak in him, and I think for better and worse, like I, you know, sometimes it can make him confusing <laughs> to me. Uh, but other times, I think like it's a really important thing that he's trying to inject back into Marxism again, this kind of uh, like not being afraid to to dream or to envision something really big, even if you don't have all the puzzle pieces in the right spots yet. Um, that's a good impulse. Uh, but what's fascinating about this is, so this is a real utopian moment, right? You have to break the state, have this non-status form of political power. Um, but when he brings himself back down to earth, all the uh, sort of reforms that he suggests always strike me as being like pretty statist reforms uh, or statist like solutions, even if they're more revolutionary. Uh, like we were talking earlier about the kind of specific things that he says, right? Um, it's hard for me to imagine like local associations of democratic deliberation, for example, figuring out how to like, I don't know, like eliminate nuclear energy and war spending on their own uh, without like, you know, rejigging the state entirely. Um, so, yeah, I guess I just feel sort of like it's a good utopian moment. I get the energy and passion behind it, but like. I don't really feel like when uh, push comes to shove, it, it helps us get where we want to go. Or can you imagine like um, every sort of like radical democratic confederacy in the world, like having uh, like a democratically elected bus route or something like, I mean, that's <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. But like one of the things he's like, he's, one of the things he's saying is like, we'll get rid of cars and have more buses. But like you have to have, <laughs> I don't know. Someone has to make the the bus decisions, guys. That's political yeah. power. 
Yeah, I think probably my guess is he would say something like, yeah, like bus drivers should make those decisions. And like, okay, there's something to that. But also like, I know, I don't know. I I kind of, I kind of feel like you should have a more unified uh, body for a transition into a better kind of society. Um, you can't just like necessarily leave everything to the bus drivers to get where you need to go, you know? Bus drivers making decisions on where the bus goes seems so bad. <laughs> I mean, Maduro was a bus driver, so, you know, they can, uh, let's let's not be, uh, we're, we're pro bus driver around here. I mean, I love bus drivers, but like, <laughs> but wouldn't it be great if you could always expect the bus to come on time every day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, 100%. Not that like um, bus drivers couldn't organize that themselves. I'm just saying that there ha- there should be like some type of checks and balances of like when the bus comes. It's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. so the, the state thing is a little bit complicated and I'm really worried about the bus. Um, uh, a little bit more on, I guess, what some of this democracy means. Uh, he says... Uh, he kind of gives like another sort of bulleted list. He says that democracy looks kind of like uh, collective ownership of the means of production, collective here meaning public, uh, cooperative or communitarian property. Uh, B, this is like the second bullet. The first one was A. I don't think I said that. Democratic planning, <laughs> which makes it possible for society to define the goals of investment and production. And C, new technological structure of the productive forces. In other words, a revolutionary social and economic transformation. So, okay, that's fine. That's fine. If that's non-status, that's fine with me. We, we'll, I'll call it that, but I know the truth. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, he also says, like, uh, a whole society should be able to sort of democratically choose what they want to do. Um, and that's fine. But also, I don't really... Uh, I don't really buy the line that like everybody's kind of capable already of democratically choosing what's in their best interest. And he tries to anticipate that saying like, yeah, of course, like there's going to be mistakes. Um, but also like there's mistakes with state communism too. Like, yeah, I mean, you kind of just have to like choose your mistakes. Nobody's got like a, a killer app for uh, how to like reorganize society. So I guess to me, like, I feel like, I don't know, maybe I'll regret saying this later, but I kind of feel like the mistakes of a potential new state communist solution to like eco uh, ecological genocide or something is like a, a preferable series of mistakes than the one that might be made by like uh, loose associations of uh, local democracies. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's also it's also kind of like frustrating, too, because, I, again, democracy is good and people should be able to exercise it. But at the same time, um, like ecological destruction is a real pressing issue, and and democracy does take quite a bit of time, right? Um, so I don't know. I would love the worker state to make that decision and just kind of get it get it done. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, here's something that we might be able to talk about. Uh, the the political program of the communist party of canada this might help us kind of think through this problem a little bit um right so Lowy takes certain sides in like inter-leftist debates about the soviet union or historical communism and that kind of thing and like that's fine whatever you can have your own hang-ups and that, that's okay uh and it leads him to make these like gestures toward democracy uh but we should emphasize that like the ecological crisis is a problem for leftists of every stripe right like um, radical Democrats or like left communists aren't the only people thinking about eco-socialism. 
Um, so I think the the program of the Communist Party is interesting because it has a section on ecology and they're like pretty average Marxist-Leninists. So they talk a lot about environmental abuses related to the Canadian context. Um, but here are like some passages about how they relate to the worries that Louis has about like inheriting the legacy of communism and, and planned economies. So um, bear with me because these are like a few paragraphs I found that might take maybe a, a second to read. But um, I think getting us on the table will help us think through it a little bit more. Um, so the program says past socialist societies competing economically and militarily with the imperialist countries made serious mistakes resulting in severe environmental damage. An important factor exacerbating this problem was the suppression of discussion and debate by a number of ruling communist parties which blocked the possibilities of preventing or promptly correcting these errors so that socialism could be built on an environmentally sustainable basis. Such abuses of the environment are not, however, inherent to socialism because it is not a system governed by the drive for private profits. So to me, that sounds like kind of dealing with a lot of Lowy's problems uh, up front. Um, the program goes on to say Canada has some of the largest resource bases and remaining environmental reserves in the world. Yet corporate environmental abuse and governmental inaction to halt and reverse such devastation threatens our lands, etc. Right. So they're, they're trying to like really pull this down to a, a local issue. Um, and then they uh, go on to say labor's struggle for safety, health and job security in the work environment is indivisible with the struggle to protect and restore the whole environment and for a fundamental shift in thinking and, uh, and economic relationships with environment with the environment. The greater scale of capitalist exploitation and crises means that environmental concerns are now inescapably linked to working class living conditions, including in Canada. Parts of organized labor, particularly some resource-based unions, have brought into the corporate agenda, have bought into the corporate agenda that pits environmental protection against employment. It is of vital importance for labor and environmental organizations to recognize that the protection of the environment is in the long-term interests of sustainable employment and for communities to unite against their common enemy, monopoly capitalism. Um, they'd say a lot more, but I think these are just a few helpful ways of getting some stuff out on the table. Um, just because, like, they are obviously intentionally inheriting the legacy of planned economies, and they think that there are some good things about doing that. And they, you know, they're Marxist Leninists. Like they want a state. They want a statist solution in the in the short term, uh, and that doesn't preclude them from kind of carrying some of the same concerns and even connections that Louis makes. Uh, and I think it's just like important to realize that the ecological problem has uh i guess become a problem for everybody who is like a self-respecting leftist at this point i think yeah i think so too um i don't know all of those paragraphs to me that you just read from the communist party of canada um they just sound like a less humanist way of putting uh Lowy's opening point or like you know the, the argument that um that the environment is like essential to human survival yeah so, good job, Communist Party of Canada. You're, <laughs> you're really thinking about it and doing a, doing great. You guys are looking great out there. It's true. Looking real good. Um, but I think, you know, I guess the point I want to make is that, like, you can be a democratic centralist, for example, instead of being, like, a, a radical democrat and uh, still get some of the stuff done. And in some ways, like, what's new about eco-socialism isn't really that it's, like, actually secretly left communism uh which you sometimes get the impression reading Lowy's book that that's one of the key differences yeah um i think it's actually more the case that uh eco-socialism is a, is a broad tradition uh that's emerging and 
it brings us back to questions of strategy. Um, and it doesn't mean that we have to like relitigate the left all over again or anything, but I guess it's just to say that uh, everybody's trying to work this out and then we kind of have to work with our own traditions to see what's available there. Yeah, I think that's good. Um, speaking of uh, working within traditions and seeing like what's available, oof, good, <laughs> another good transition over here. Uh, so the, the first, like, I don't know, half of Loewy's book is really committed to getting to that theory that we've been uh, going on and on about. Uh, but I would say the second half of the book predominantly is um, some really interesting kind of case studies about the eco-struggles of um, both Latin America, um, sort of like as like a, a grouping of states, but also of indigenous people. And to me, this is actually, I think, the more interesting part of the book because it basically reemphasizes all of the points he's just made, but um, with some actual case studies to kind of grab onto. Yeah. Um, so it's at this point in the book where he starts talking um, a lot about uh, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, both the, the states proper, um, but also the indigenous people that live there. And um, I think it's really pretty i don't know it's pretty interesting i think it to me it like um it emphasizes that like i don't know we can talk sort of like you know left marxism big state communism all we want but like the folks who are really kind of dealing with this first and uh who are i think setting the tone for how we struggle with these things are indigenous people yeah for sure and uh what's great about this line too is that it shows i think pretty dramatically the kinds of um, problems that Louis theorizes at the very beginning about how uh, not only do like green sort of capitalist initiatives need to drop the capitalism if they want to get anywhere, uh, but socialists have to find ways of um, you know becoming more green, actually taking that on board in a serious way. And indigenous people are really like leading the charge based on like sheer needs of survival um, to like force certain socialist governments to do that. And uh, sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't listen to those uh, those interventions. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, on um, the eco-struggles of indigenous people, uh, Lowy says this. Indigenous communities have become the center of the struggle for the environment in Latin America. This is true not only because of their local actions in defense of rivers and forests against petroleum and mining multinationals, but also because they propose an alternative way of life to that of neoliberal globalized capitalism. Um, so for Lowy, um, indigenous people and their resistance is important because like they are the people who sort of live closest to it and um, I think are probably most affected by it. Uh, he gives a few examples of exactly how that's the case, especially when it comes to like the, um, the like the uh, war of water in uh, Bolivia and some other cases too. Um, but also that like uh, indigenous people, offer something kind of interesting because they have a, a radically different way of life and haven't been subsumed into neoliberal globalized capitalism. Um, pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and also true, not only in Latin America, but in North America as well. Uh, I mean, Standing Rock is sort of the obvious example, maybe in the, in the most recent like round of press co uh, coverage. Um, but here in Canada, like, indigenous voices are uh, hands down like the most uh, vocal and militant people uh, against like the 
like expansion of extractive capitalism in Canada, which is huge. It's a huge, huge industry. Extractive industry is like close to like 10% of the GDP of Canada. So, I mean, there's a lot, you know, working against those kinds of interests. And uh, yeah, it's consistently indigenous people leading those kinds of struggles. Yeah. Um, so listen to indigenous people. Seems pretty straightforward, I guess. <laughs> yeah, though I should say that the strength of uh, Lowy's analysis there is that he goes out of his way to offer like a ton of really concrete examples. Like it's not as simple as uh, him just being like, um, you know, checking a box and being like indigenous rights are important or indigenous voices are important. But he's like, here's like several cases where uh, things wouldn't have um progressed in the way that they did uh without indigenous people uh or like here are several cases where indigenous people tried really hard to stop this certain thing from happening or whatever so it's not like an accidental thing it's like constitutive of, of an eco-socialist approach yeah that's right um i think some of that becomes a little bit more clear even when he's giving a um when he's giving critical support of um some of those uh good latin american countries that socialists like to talk about so being a French Brazilian, um, Loey uh, turns to start talking about um, the examples of, uh, of, yeah, Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and Brazil, um, and sort of like what they are contributing to eco-socialism or how we can kind of think about them uh, in terms of both like socialist countries that have socialist policies, but also uh, remaining like holding a little bit of criticism for them as well because of uh, some issues. Uh, so Loey says this. Some countries, however, like Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador, have attempted to break with neoliberal policies and have confronted the interests of the oligarchy and multinationals. All these anti-imperialist and anti-oligarchic governments recognize the importance of ecological challenges and are disposed to take measures to safeguard the environment. However, all three of their governmental budgets remain totally dependent on returns from fossil fuels, gas and petroleum, uh, the fuels responsible for climate change, the Venezuelan government has hardly examined this issue. The absence of a sizable and organized indigenous population at the sites of exploitation is one of the reasons for this lack. Certainly, by prohibiting industrial fishing, which destroys all marine fauna, to the benefit of small-scale fishing, the Chavez government took an important ecological measure. However, the exploitation of petroleum, which includes all its dirtiest forms, continues without interruption, and there are few efforts to develop alternative energies. Um, yeah, I think that's especially important in light of even what's happening in Venezuela right now, right? Uh, like the they put all their eggs in the the oil basket, and when the oil uh, industry, um, the wind sort of you know went in the wrong direction for them, uh, they ended up with a huge financial crisis. And I mean the the socialism has I think carried them through some really hard times for sure. Uh, but it's also true that having maybe uh, tried a little bit harder to be eco-socialists uh, earlier, they might have been able to uh, sidestep some of those issues. I mean, this is like a common criticism of them, and it's for certainly for certain it's not you know completely uh, like it's not like their fault or anything like that um, entirely uh, that that's the case. Like they shouldn't just be blamed for like the situation they're in based on like bad planning or something. That's not true. Um, but it is true that. Uh, basing your uh, your socialist economy on uh extractive uh resources is like not just ecologically dangerous but it's also dangerous for your own like social programs yeah for sure i mean i think it's a good critique uh at the same time <laughs> it's just like 
at the same time, it's hard because like I don't know. That's what they have to work with, and yeah, hundred um, percent. It was it you know it was uh, extremely helpful to sort of uh, challenge those uh, oligarchic and imperialist powers. Uh, Lowy even recognizes this uh, a little bit later in the same section uh, where he's giving critical support. <laughs> critical support is a great term too to be like. You're, <laughs> It's just like, you know, you're fine, but I have something to say about you. Yeah, that's um, how I feel about this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lots of critical support out here. Um, so Lowy says, it is reasonable for eco-socialists and anti-capitalists to support these governments, meaning the ones I just mentioned. Uh, whatever their limits and contradiction against their right-wing, oligarchic, and pro-imperialist enemies, but this can only be a critical support considering how far these experiences are from an effective socialist and ecological perspective. Surely it would be unrealistic to ask the governments of Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador to immediately stop oil or gas production, since this is, at the moment, the main source of financing for their significant social programs. So, yeah, I mean, exactly what we're saying. It's, like, hard to blame them, and that's, like, kind of where their money is coming from. But at the same time, it has its pretty clear drawbacks. Yeah, and it's also especially true that, like, (laughs) you shouldn't... You shouldn't hound like those governments, for example, for using uh, their oil profits to actually do something good while like they are far and away not the main polluters on the planet. Like they are, uh, you know, still even still uh, having based their economies on a a bad um, like a bad productive situation, uh, even still are not nearly uh, the people you should be pointing your fingers at first if you're like upset about the state of the world <laughs> yeah no kidding point fingers at the united states point fingers at canada venezuela yeah. bolivia ecuador what could they do i mean like yeah, exactly. it's just sort of like a situation that they're in the united states though has some um different problems contributors <laughs> in different ways yeah it's weird too because a lot of the time people talk about those countries but they don't go out of their way to talk about say a place like norway which is also based on lots and lots of oil. I mean, they need that extractive industry to fund a lot of their social programs as well. Uh, but there's a certain implicit, I think, uh, generalized imperialist um, consciousness that holds like uh, struggling socialist countries like Venezuela or Bolivia to a standard that they don't necessarily hold a place like Norway to. Well, it's also white supremacy. Like, Yeah, exactly. Norway is white people, so it's chill. Yeah, so, I don't know, just an important thing to look at. And it's weird, too, that, like, Lowy doesn't even necessarily um, go out of his way to, like, go after Norway on these points. It, it Yeah, it is interesting, though. Um, I mean, people in the United States are constantly pointing towards Norway as dem- uh, as socialist in some way, but uh, Lowy doesn't even give them the time of day. Doesn't even critique them. <laughs> no critical <That's> support. Right. <laughs> no critical support from Norway. So uh, high up the... on, that, on that list of actual socialist countries in the world or whatever, <laughs> but they don't even show up in this book. So how socialist can they be? Yeah, not very, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, all right, well, we've talked a lot about socialism, uh, but let's uh, let's do a, a short pivot, a very, very hesitant <laughs> pivot to talking about some theology or specifically maybe uh, one theologian that I like in particular, Leonardo Boff, um, who's also a Brazilian and uh, I think, I mean, has some of the most interesting things to say about ecology. Um I I guess I should preface this saying that like there's a pretty strong current of eco theology that's being developed and it could only be improved by dialoguing even further with eco socialists um, like Lowy in particular to kind of help identify like where eco theology is often trapped in like radical reformist measures but doesn't go as far as a revolutionary measure. Um, but Boff is not in that 
camp whatsoever. Um, and I think that's why he's so important. So he wrote an article a few years back for the magazine Tacoon, or, or at least it got published there anyway, uh, which is a great magazine. Um, but the uh, title of it is The Earth Will Defeat Capitalism. And that might sound like a triumphant thing at first, but uh, let me tell it's you, not. it is not. <laughs> Real big um, bummer, actually. Huge bummer. The Boff brand bummer. All right, so here's how he ends the article uh, after talking about how bad capitalism is. He says, This process of excessive degradation could cause an ecological social collapse of Dante-esque proportions. The consequence would be that the Earth would be would definitively defeat the capitalist system which would be incapable of reproducing itself with its materialist culture of limitless and individualistic consumption. What we have historically been unable to accomplish by alternative processes, that was the goal of socialism, nature and the earth would accomplish. The earth, in fact, would free herself from the cancer that threatens to metastasize throughout the whole organism of Gaia. Meanwhile, our task is within the system to widen the openings, exploring all its contradictions, to guarantee the essentials for subsistence, nourishment, work, housing, education, basic services, and some free time, especially to the humble peoples of the earth. This is being done in Brazil and in many other countries. Uh, uh, kind of weird to say that right now in light of the Brazilian elections. Um, but he says, from the bad, we must take only the necessary minimum for the continuity of life and of civilization. And he ends saying, and also, we must pray and be prepared for the worst. Uh, probably not what you'd expect to hear from a theologian uh ending on that kind of like dark eschatological note um but i think there's a lot of important things to mine out of here i don't know matt how does that uh article strike you (laughs) yeah it's it's good it's it's good um i like it for all the reasons i like speculative philosophy um in the sense that it's like well humans you'll all die someday and you'll be over and the earth won't care um, yeah. <laughs> and that's cool. I love that. That's kind of like a good humbling exercise, I think, for all of us. On the other hand, it is actually a really sort of Virilio-esque kind of quote, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, last week we... It was last week, right? Yeah. Oh, God. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, we read that quote where, you know, Virilio's like, ah, the end of the world, that's not interesting to us. Um, yeah. And I think it's kind of the same thing. Um, I mean, what he's pointing towards here is something that really can't be of interest to us because we'll all be gone. Um, but at the same time, the end is like the, the last paragraph that you read there too, is like our task within the system is to widen the openings. Um, is that really a point of like figuring out what to do in the meantime? Yeah, exactly. And I think what I like about this so much is that I think there's a tendency within theology, Christian theology, um, to just always go toward hope and like always be looking for hope, even if it's like the hope against hope or something like that. Um, and like Boff has written a lot about hope in his own life, um, having had a really difficult one. Uh, but like the, the weird place that hope shows up in this article is basically like, well, justice will happen. Uh, even if that means we have to go for it to occur. I think that, that insight, though, that, like, justice will happen even if we have to go is actually, like, what makes it so Christian. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a... Okay, so this is, like, a... Um, maybe it makes me sound dumb because there are people that know a lot about theology listening to this podcast. But uh, in my undergrad, we uh, we read this book <laughs> called Improvisation by Sam Wells. Sam Wells is, like, a... I don't know, like, a Duke, a Duke University sort of 
I don't know, not quite Stanley Hauerwas kind of guy, but sort of like that. He's he's just like they're friends, I think. Yeah, I think so. He's just kind of like a liberal theology sort of dude. Anyways, uh, at the end of so he has this book about improvisation about how like church is kind of like improv and it's like a thing that I read in my undergrad, and that's all I'm trying to say. But anyways, uh. He breaks up the he breaks up sort of the biblical story into these acts, right? And the eschaton is the last one, and you know that like it doesn't matter what happens because like um because like it's sort of like the redemption of all things through Christ or whatever, and um or whatever. But like this is like <laughs> but this is like that eschaton is the eschatological moment where like um like the the um the earth defeats capitalism. It's it throws off its oppressor in the sense that like all humans are gone and things are made right, and there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the craziest part about it, too, is that um, the other sort of Christian side to this is that you can't really stop justice. Like even humans can't stop justice. Um, It's always going to it's always going to find a way to happen. Um, And there's no reason to like it has to happen with us, even though we wish that it would or something like that. Um, I think it's just also really it's equal parts like troubling, uh, but also motivating um, I mean, Boff doesn't really give a lot of reason to feel like any of these efforts would be efficacious, right? Like opening, uh, widening the openings, exploring contradictions, guaranteeing these essentials, all that kind of thing. Um, those are all kind of like, I guess, like last day's survival measures or something. Um, but it's also like, those are things that you have to do. Uh, and I think that's the the motivating part. Like, you, you have to help people like get food and like, live in houses and and have some free time right like these are all things that like no matter when the planet gets too hot or whatever you're still gonna have to do that and uh i think there's something really like um i don't know like weirdly sort of courageous about that yeah i think so too i like it it's a good eschatology better than the rapture i mean there are so many like christian ways to respond to the climate change um discourse i guess in the world uh but i feel pretty convinced that at this stage like i mean you can like stick your head in the sand and i guess that's like what most christians do in the united states at least in particular um but i feel like the 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 only real option open at this point is for christians to like join socialist movements right like uh if you really want to like help be a friend to the earth or something uh you should probably advocate for like the dismantling of a of an economic system that is forcing you to be enemies with it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that gets us that that eco-socialism would get Christians so much further than like the um I don't know, eco-theology of the day. Not I mean there's Yeah, like the stewardship stuff or whatever. Yeah, that's actually what I'm talking about. There's probably a good eco-theology um like Boff, but other people too are probably good. But like, I don't know, um there's a um there's a really popular book sort of in my Christian milieu over here called salvation means creation healed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it is all about stewardship and like, um, you know, make sure, making sure that we have the right hermeneutic when we're reading Genesis and um, figuring out how to like live with um, live within our ecological situation and not destroy it. And like really what it comes, uh, comes down to in, in that book that I specifically mentioned and I don't want to speak about any other theology because it'd be too much for me. But like in that book specifically, there's like an idealism that is just like untenable in the sense where it's like, well, if we just say enough nice things about the way Christians should think about ecology, suddenly they will. And 
yeah. uh, hasn't happened yet. And I know a yeah. lot of people have read that book. So <laughs> it's just like, uh, it seems like we need a more, ro- like Christians need a more robust way of thinking through uh, their orientation toward ecology, like materially and not just sort of on the sort of theological and idealist level. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's telling too that like some of the most powerful ecotheology stuff that has come out, at least that I've seen, actually comes from uh, anarchist traditions. Um, like people like Ched Myers or something like that. Um, and like, of all people, like John Zerzan is in dialogue with a bunch of Christian theologians about all this kind of stuff, like ecological collapse and everything like that. Um, but that stuff always strikes me as sort of a non-starter. So, I mean, I'm, I'm far more interested in like... Uh, how how a, a more pragmatic or practical like socialist approach to these kinds of things might be able to um offer christians like more analytic tools other than like rewilding or something like that now yeah. there's anything wrong with that i don't know like eating berries is cool I'm not I'm not saying you shouldn't do that um but uh it's not like uh it's also not a solution yeah i think so also i should add like so in a past life i was really interested in biblical studies and there is a really cool book by Walter Brueggemann called The Land. And it's just all about how the land appears in the Hebrew scriptures in particular. And one thing that he goes out of his way to explain is that uh, the land has a lot of agency in the Bible. And it uh, it acts as a basically like an instrument of judgment oftentimes not just like the judgment of god um but also like it just is a judge in itself it sort of judges the morality of the people that live on it um and i think that there's a lot to be said about that like about how there's a a kind of untapped like biblical language for how we think about creation that isn't just like stewardship uh you know that sees creation as maybe like an inert thing that we have to like guard over or have dominion over however you want to like work it out uh but instead like creation is a thing that is like maybe sometimes dialoguing with us but like right now mostly arguing with us uh and like we will definitely lose that argument at some point um and there's something about that right like we could be judged not just by god but like by the planet itself that's kind of what boff is after um so finding ways to i guess go back to like some of these roots like some biblical roots but also the roots of like marx and uh put these kind of ecological um impulses together i think is something that should seem supernatural <laughs> should seem really natural not supernatural <laughs> 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 this reminds me of that one time in the office when michael says um i'm not superstitious but i am stitious <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard and you want to support us, you can do that on patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, really appreciate all your help there. We managed to make some really cool pins and uh, mail those out, so keep those pictures coming. Uh, it's cool to see them out in the world and uh, where they end up, so pumped about that. 
Uh, you can also find us elsewhere on the internet. We're on Twitter, at The Magnificast. We are on Facebook. We've got a discussion group called The Magnificast Basement. Um, you can follow up on things we've said on, on the show or uh, read some other articles that other folks are posting. And um, yeah, just keep building uh, some spaces for Christian leftists to talk to each other. That's one, one thing we're trying to do there. Um, let's see uh we have our music made by amori armstrong and our outros by the illogical spoon which by the way is a great band to listen to on this topic of uh, ecology and christianity they come out of this uh sort of um anarchist uh, christian exchange that i was talking about earlier uh but it makes for some amazing uh music and the themes that they explore are really creative and, and fascinating uh and they deserve all your support and help um all right We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.